Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Out College Podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today, wow, I got an episode for you. So I just had a conversation with a guy named Patrick Ryan. I first met Patrick a few weeks ago at an event and we started having a conversation about robotics and uh, AI and all these crazy things. And, and I'm like, hey man, you gotta come on the podcast. And so in this episode, we sort of picked up where we left off talking about all these crazy things. I did my best in this conversation to explore all of the topics that we cover with as much detail as I can. Uh, and try to break it down into easily digestible pieces because we cover a lot of ground and talk about a lot of different things. I know personally, I want to go back and Google a lot of this stuff. I want to research in the meantime, it's going to be rattling around in my mind for the next couple of months thinking about some of the things that we talked about uh, in this conversation. Uh, So, if you get a little lost, don't worry. We do try to reel back in as we go. So just stick through it. You're going to love it. Your mind is going to be blown. And so without further delay, please enjoy this episode with Patrick Ryan. Hey, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. It's really an honor to have you on the show. Patrick, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I mean, uh, I, I met you for the first time, it must have been just a few weeks ago now. And, uh, you know, we started talking and you, you were filled with a ton of really interesting information about the future and about uh, some stuff headed our way that I think a lot of people are not thinking of or have never thought of. And so I would love to cover as much of that as we can today and, and uh, hopefully blow the minds of, of the listeners here. Sure. Yeah. That's uh, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of used to going on my spiel, but this will be the first time I've had it recorded in audio. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, like, again, that's an honor. So um Let's let's start with what do you do professionally? Where did you get to? Uh, how did you get to this point? How did your interest or your uh, knowledge get to the point where it's at now? Uh, I started my illustrious career at a church of all places. Well, not not a real church. It was a non-denominational church called the Ocean City Tabernacle. It was on the circuit for non-denominational speakers, and I was a landscaper there. A uh, very large property that required a lot of cutting grass and planting trees and that sort of business. And uh, one day back in like, this is before Red Hat and Microsoft blew up early 90s or mid 90s. Um, they had a computer problem in their IT department. And I just kind of walked in, fixed it. And then I just went back out, back to work. <laughs> and everyone was like, whoa, 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 hold on. Who is this kid? How does he, how did he do that? Uh, and so I got promoted and started managing the IT at this church that I thought was just a church until I came across their QuickBooks file and realized that they had $30 million in their account. And oh my God, that's pretty crazy, right? Um, the guy who ran it, his name was, God, what was his name? Buck. Bob Buck. It's been that long. Bob Buck used to work for Tandy. 
And Bob Buck was my earliest business uh, mentor. He told me the one lesson I'll never forget. And he says, if you want someone to respect what you have, make them pay for it. And that's a lesson that took me a long time to really internalize. But things led to another. I started doing compare, uh, computer repair work for other things. Uh, but then the dot-com bubble hit in 2000, and uh, nobody was hiring computer people. Nobody was hiring, period. It was uh, a dreary time. I was back to landscaping again and uh, decided to train myself in audio engineering because I was pretty handy with a computer, and that led to being handy with music. Ran my own website for a long time. Uh, went to school for it full sale uh, learned audio engineering decided to come out to LA and uh, I got to meet some pretty interesting people out here in LA doing audio engineering for a long time and uh, one thing led to another and I got to meet some top talent people uh, like Dave Pensato which did all kinds of R&B mixing and engineering and uh, Dave Pensato has to keep a gun in his car and that's uh, that's unfortunate because that's a legend of, of mixing and engineering. And even at the top of his game, he still has to carry personal defense like that. It's like, you know, <laughs> maybe I should reevaluate my uh, career paths. Uh, and so I backed out of that and uh, I stumbled across a ridiculous out of the blue moonshot offer to be a PHP programmer. And I took the interview and they said I had scored better than any PHP programmer that they've ever hired. And that started my computer career. So that's the, that's the formal crazy route that I took to get to like being immersed full time in technology. And that's the foundation um, kind of switching between living in abject poverty and, and going up to be suddenly upper middle class practically overnight. Um, I, I started to realize that I probably wouldn't be alone in that transition and that there would be a lot of people going through something similar. Um, I started to think about what that meant. How does that look economically? How does that translate on the internet when people are collecting together and changing their behaviors and that sort of thing? So I can go on and on about this particular question for an entire book, and so I'm not going to. <laughs> but that's, that's the necessary background. Excellent. Well, I, you know, um, that's really cool stuff, and and... I, what I find interesting is the balance between doing like the hard manual labor and then also in that transition, uh, towards a much more technically, uh, you know, driven position. It's kind of like a metaphor for, for what we're experiencing as a, as a workforce, as a whole, you know, transitioning from the manual work to the knowledge work. And one of the things that we talked about the, the first time we met was sort of these trends and how these trends in technology are, are, uh, you know, going to shape the the future in a way that I think a lot of people don't think about. And so how did you get, how did you first start noticing these patterns or these trends and uh, where did sort of like that, you know, where was the first string that you started to pull that, that led you down this uh, path of understanding sort of what we might be in for? The Iraq war, uh, Iraq war two, I suppose, when it broke out. Um, I was not pleased with the justifications for that war. I did not find them sufficiently complex in a complex world. Um, uh, 9-11 being what it was. And for most Americans, 9-11 was just a TV event. It was just something on the screen that happened. But I, I lived in New Jersey. I've seen those towers with my own eyes. Um, uh, business people, friends of friends, they got killed. I mean, Seas Coast, everybody knew somebody that was involved. And those towers are so large that when you walked past them and you looked straight up, the top of the towers didn't move. Everything else moved, but the top of the towers didn't. That's how tall they were. 
and uh, when they went down, um, War on Terror began, and Bush did his thing, um, and the media did their thing. And the justification was obviously for easy digestion, right? We're, we're going to stop the bad guys, um, Osama bin Laden, this, that, and the other. Uh, but I had seen evidence that Saudi Arabia was involved very early on, um, and that made me very upset. Um, Saudi Arabia, they're, they're, the, they're our source of energy. What, what, what do they have a hand in this for? Um, so I started really researching that pretty extensively. And at that time, I was a bit more Marxist. Actually, I was extremely more Marxist in those days. Um, I'm not so much these any, anymore, and there's a long story behind that too. But my fellow Marxists kind of took the the propaganda as is. They said <clears throat> they, they were – they were being told that, oh, this is a war for oil, and this is a war f- to, for Walmart, and this is a war for patriarchy. And it's, it's, like, it's like a grab bag of, of, of power words you just threw out there. And upon analysis, which and do, especially learning a bit about programming, um, I realized that it was much more complex than that. It was, there was a lot more factors going on than, than meets the eye. And it's not a question of even hiding it. The factors are so complicated, they hide themselves. It's not even a question of, of saying, oh, well, they're, they're not telling you. It's so complicated, they literally can't tell you. It, it, it's the, the factors of oil production and the oil economics, what it means to take oil, what kind of collateral arrangements are associated with that. Um, how does China grow? Well, they need oil. Okay, well, do we give them oil? Well, if we do, then how does that disrupt the treasury agreements we have with them? Oh, well, it sounds like we probably have to deny oil from them. And before you know it, it's this massive geopolitical game of chess. And you're just talking about one substance, and it's just this massive game. And I love massive games. I played a lot of civilization. So to me, this was like secondhand nature. My, my analytical side, uh, the, the sort of chess thinking and, and civilization. And this was it. This was a game that was being played. And I saw it as such. And I just wanted to see what is. But my ideological peers had no concern for such things. They were more obsessed with trying to repeat the 1960s and have a nice little blowout and kumbaya moment. Um, and that was disheartening. Very much so. Um, and so once I walked down the road of that sort of geopolitical game, I was spent years trying to figure out what is instead of what should be. Uh, my Marxist peers were very much obsessed with what should be, uh, mostly at the expense of what is. And uh, as I went further and further down that road, I started seeing what is. Um, and then once I got more comfortable with it, I started wondering what will be. And that leads to your question. Love it. So, and just to be clear, like about the justification for the uh, second Iraq war, you know, the, the justification from the media was, you know, going in there looking for WMDs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that was, that was for uh, Iraq in particular, um, in which the WMDs were who knows where, um, whether they existed or not, whether they were put there by, um, Rumsfeld, who knows? Uh, it, it, it's almost inconsequential at this point because Iraq has been decimated for the past 17 years. Uh, you have an entire generation of children who grew up knowing nothing but being bombed, and now ISIS is a problem. Well, where did you get those ISIS kids from? Yeah, they grew up in this mess. So, oh, oh, and Europe gets a ton of free labor as a result of that population displacement. So, one thing always leads to another. It's, it's a uh, the law of conservation of mass and energy. You don't really destroy problems. You just kind of displace them. Um, 
and that's what the geopolitical game is really about is about displacing problems and buying time um so so yeah that's so sort of that so to, so to answer your question that's the background of of the complexity that i was trying to solve for um i started wondering okay well this is probably going to spiral out of control if you're going for iraq they're going for afghanistan why stop there? They'll probably go for Libya soon, or they'll go for Syria, or whatever the case may be. And, and why stop there? I'm sure Iran's next on the chopping block. Uh, probably Saudi Arabia if they get a little too antsy. Who knows? Um, so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm seeing this war on terror as basically a never-ending permanent war. And so this is bad for me, because one, I'm of drafting age, uh, and two, my daughter will be of drafting age at some point way back then. Um, so I should probably get on top of this if this is going to consume, uh, the, if it's going to threaten, if, if this has the threat of consuming a lot more. Uh, these are personal motivations. Uh, this, is, this is sort of the amateur approach to the, the geopolitical game, uh, sort of like Fisher Price, my first introduction of, of geopolitical concerns. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, I'm taking the problem very seriously as much as I can from, from a very amateur position. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking it through. And uh, I start wondering, well, drafts are unpopular. They'll probably not go throw that in because that will just derail the entire war effort. You, you can't have a forever war if, if you're drafting people. It's just not going to work. And as, as skilled as some of our professionals are and, and with the rise of uh, PMCs and that sort of thing, uh, even then, you can put a lot on those shoulders, but it's still not enough. Um, you need to fight different types of wars. And these are city conflicts, by the way. This isn't tanks rolling out in the desert side or aerial bombardments, free will sort of total war scenarios. This is surgical strikes in cities, buildings, infinite spots of cover. I mean, this is uh, the Russians and, and the Germans had fought the Battle of Berlin for months at the expense of almost a quarter of a million soldiers just because of the complexity of urban uh, terrain. And so... Uh, this is a massive undertaking. I mean, there's a lot of ways this can go wrong and yet we're 17 years in. So arguably they got it right. Um, the architects of this sort of conflict and how, and what did they get right? Um, well, they, they got right how you psychologically manage the description of the battle space. It's not about meat and bullets and expenditures. It's about information and data. And once I started seeing that, then I started thinking, Oh, okay, the information and data side of it. Can you trick people into thinking there are soldiers when there aren't? Can you convince people to move one way when you didn't have to? Uh, the, the sort of psychological operations of warfare struck me as a, a much more, as a much cheaper route than, than throwing bullets everywhere. Um, and so I started wondering about what it means to bring AI to warfare like that. What does it mean when people could control AIs that control robots and these sorts of things. You wouldn't need a draft. You wouldn't need PMCs. You wouldn't need all these things. You just send unlimited robots all over the place and started thinking about what that future would look like. Um, and I'm going to take a pause right now because I threw a lot at you, uh, but I'm take a pause and, and let you recover. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I got to digest all this stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's a lot. I feel like I'm going to be listening to this twice myself, but uh, <laughs> like, um, just to rewind a little bit, I, I want you're you're looking for patterns. You're noticing these different things in the media, and I, and I think a lot of people notice some uh, sort of strange behavior from the media around that time of the Iraq War. You know, you had like uh, they weren't allowed to show 
uh, at least this is my first memory of the media and sort of some weird reporting on it was all of a sudden they weren't allowed to show the bodies coming back from uh, the war zone. They weren't able to show that on TV. And it sort of, uh, I remember that confusing some of the people around me. And I think it's interesting that you're looking for things, not so much the things that are in plain sight and looking for patterns there, but looking for what's what's hidden and what's behind the scenes. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that, like how you start to identify those things that, or how do you put together the pieces that you realize like, hey, they should be talking about this, but they're not, or this should be, uh, you know, in our perspective, but it's not. Right. The, um, I had plenty of friends and family uh, who are in the military. I've been, I've been always military adjacent for m- much, much of my life, um, but I, I never did serve. I just, I just didn't like the politics around it. Um, but the, uh, I've always been sort of surrounded by those types. And uh, I've come to learn from them that the number one asset the United States military has is not its kill ratio. It's not its technology, even it's its logistics. It's the ability to put a Ford operating base anywhere on earth in 72 hours after the executive demands it. Uh, that's something that no other country has, can't even come close to. The British couldn't even pull that off when they owned a global naval trade. Uh, so it's, so it's, it's massive to be able to dump not just the soldiers, but all of the logistics, the infrastructure, the supporting work, uh, everything they need to stay in a prolonged engagement. That is that is worth its weight in gold. And that's the number one thing that makes the United States military so fearsome. Um, we can drop infrastructure down instantaneously anywhere on this planet. And so when you, when you realize that factor, you're no longer thinking of war uh, in, in terms of blood and sweat, but you're thinking in terms of attrition and logistics. Um, so, when you take that sort of tact, when you look at that road, um, you start thinking of ways to amplify the logistics while minimizing the material cost. You start thinking a bit kind of like a general to a degree. How do you maximize performance while minimizing expenditure? <clears throat> and one of the ways I thought about that was the robotics route. Um, you didn't need super hardcore AI. You just needed human piloted stuff. And Iraq was one of the first places where drones were being deployed for the first time to Global Hawks. So this was starting to dovetail rather nicely. I figured, okay, well, you'll probably have EOD units, robots doing stuff too. And, and sure enough, they popped up. That seemed like low-hanging fruit. Uh, you'll probably have uh, types of machines that will carry the wounded, carry supplies, uh, types of machines that can be mobile cover. There's all kinds of possibilities that can be deployed in this sort of uh, setup and engagement. So it became very abundant that robotics were going to have a permanent place in warfare, but what kind of place? It wasn't enough to think Terminator. I mean, thank you, James Cameron for, for planting that meme in everyone's head. Um, but, but it's much more sophisticated than that. It's not just killer robots running around shooting each other. Um, you need, uh, or shooting humans, I should say, ideally they'll shoot each other. Um, but what you'll end up having, what you'll end up with are a sort of, if you take this to its most logical route, you'll end up with a return of what I'm calling the citizen soldier model, where uh, the draft was unpopular uh, between uh, between Johnson and Nixon. That was clearly established. The entire DOD structured themselves to never rely on a draft again. Volunteer forces, uh, military contractors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the 
ability to disconnect citizens from serving was actually a legitimate concern for the Quartering Act at the founding of the Constitution. Um, the argument was that you shouldn't separate soldiers from the citizenry because then they have nothing in common and the soldiers will outright slaughter the citizens. This was a legit concern uh, for the Third Amendment. Um, and so they agreed, the founders agreed that uh, soldiers, sh uh, soldiers could be separated from uh, citizens under certain conditions, and so no quartering was allowed. But the argument against it was that soldiers and citizens should be united in some degree so they don't get out of control. And I found that art, uh, line of reasoning to be rather fascinating. Um, uh, when you have robotics, you can start having that argument again because the robots that are going to pop up at first as we see with the global hawk they're not going to be these like fully autonomous drones running around just wrecking you know wrecking stuff like it was a a, a video game you're going to have humans piloting the vast majority of them up front if for no other reason than for the training data alone so what that means is <laughs> it, it changes how you think of logistics of warfare it means you don't just draft 18 year old males for selective service you draft everyone children, the elderly, the working, the poor, the homeless, everybody becomes a soldier. Everybody becomes a military asset because as long as they can hook up to some machine that can fly around and do missions, then bang, that's it. The, the draft of the future is, is, is going to be a video game where you roll out of bed, you, you log in somewhere for three hours or rack up a leaderboard of, of whatever objectives, and then you finish up and go to work and your entire family will do that. And so once I, once I saw that, I was like, oh, God, the whole nature of war is just completely fundamentally changed now. <laughs> this is fun. This is a very different way of looking at things. It's, it's the, 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 the sort of the conditioning that the Marxists had endured where um, they were to, you know, cheer, cheer, rah, rah for a grand return of the 60s so they can rally their base. That's thoroughly eliminated. That's gone in this future. Um, you have robots, you have, you have citizen soldiers as the norm and any nation who wants to compete against that also has to do that. And now when you start playing that game, now we can start talking the economics of robotics. You have robots, uh, doing all the soldiering tasks, the logistic tasks, the uh, support, uh, essential work. Um, but then you, eventually you get very good at producing these machines and then maybe a couple corporations want to buy them for their works. Maybe they want to do them for warehouse work or maybe they want to do them for construction. And so it kind of trickles through the economy uh, from the military to the commercial down to the residential, eventually back to government. Um, this sort of flow of robotic infrastructure will just come rushing from the military sector. Um, and I, I just wanted to map that out as, as far as I could. Wow. So you're blowing my mind. You're scaring the shit out of me. A little bit. Um, <laughs> my apologies. Because <laughs> robotics to me is something that is, it seems impossibly far away, but then you watch a Boston Dynamics video and I just saw, you know, the latest, uh, the la a, a recent video from them that, you know, brought my fears to a new level where they have this robot, you know, on wheels now and it's, it's maneuvering in all these crazy ways and they have ones that can do backflips and these sorts of things. Uh, where do you project we are on like the robotic scale? Do you think this is something that's going to hit us really soon, like in the next five, 10 years? Or do you think it's something that, uh, you know, might take longer? Or it's not, you know, like, like where, where do, basically where do you see us, uh, you know, starting to move in this direction? 
It's already here. It's a question of tiers. Uh, the first tier is going to be human guided, 100% guided, uh, where it's a pilot, they're controlling it, joystick or whatever their interface of choice is. Eventually you'll get um, human suggested assistance where they are mostly babysitting the robotics, um, but there's still human input required, kind of like um, autopilot for planes. And then you get to the point where you have heavy autonomous stuff where the machines are, they understand their perception decision trees very well. They know their limitations and they go forth and do specialized operations. You won't have a generalized AI in a robot running around doing stuff that, that there's a relationship you have to understand that's, that's really hindering this. And once I understood that relationship, I had to step to the next phase of, of what this all meant. So let me explain this, uh, this core limitation of AI. When you have machines, uh, think of a, a rocket ship. A rocket ship goes into the leaves earth goes in a vertical and then eventually horizontal trajectory uh you have to account for the fuel you need to get up but to get more you need a large amount of fuel to to escape gravity but the more fuel you need the more structure you need which means the more mass you're moving which means the more fuel you need which means the more structure you need which means the more mass you need which means the more so it can, it can rapidly spiral into absurdity um and the same thing is true for robots so just because you add more sensors and you add more CPUs, and you add more batteries, doesn't necessarily make the robot smarter. Um, if you turn around and say, well, we'll just add 20 sensors instead of the six we have. Okay, you have 20 sensors. Now you need more CPU, which means now you need uh, more battery. And by adding just even a couple sensors, which are originally maybe one gram each, now you need twice the amount of battery to, peck, to keep up with the CPUs, which means now you've, you've increased the size of the frame. So there's a sort of relationship between cognitive awareness of the environment that the robot can perceive versus structural limitations to make that cognitive awareness uh, feasible or at least uh, objectively useful. Um, there's, a, there's a strange ratio that people are still working out uh, to, to get that right. And, and even you see this even with Boston Dynamics. Um, there's no... Only recently have they put out a fairly slick design with the dog, uh, with that robo dog uh, concept they have. But everything else just looks like a Frankensteinian mess. Um, uh, they're contending against this ratio, which is why you see a lot of tethers. Although some of the newer ones are, are free of tethers these days, um, and and a lot of them tend to rely on offloaded uh, AI stuff too. So they transmit what their sensors are seeing and then transmit back commands. That's also an option. So there's a whole medley of strategies to make the, the robots feasible, but it's still not there. It's just not quite there. Um, and so this led, me to, this led me to think about, okay, well, you can't put all the computation on the robot. You're going to have to have computation outside of it. You're going to have these large cloud structures and these data centers, and they're going to be processing a huge amount of data, not just for that the robot can perceive, but what sensors around the AO can also perceive. So satellites or, or uh, if you're able to tap into the telecoms of, of, the, of the AO that you're in, um, all that's going to get fed into the AI as well, into whatever AI compute that you manage to spin up. And then that in turn is going to give direction, guidance, and suggestions to the AI to operate within the area of operation. So... There's this interplay um, that can be leveraged to offset the failure of getting these totally perfect autonomous robots. I personally believe that perfectly autonomous robots will never happen. And if you want good enough AI, you just have a kid. That's as close as you're going to get. Uh, but when it comes to like serious AI, the sci-fi freaky stuff, 
that's probably never going to happen. Unfortunately, it doesn't need to happen. Good enough AI is just as scary. Well, what frightens you most about like these sort of opening this Pandora's box into AI and robotics? My biggest fear is that people don't understand the economics of it. Um, what it means, how it translates. It, it's not necessarily that it replaces jobs. That's absolutely not true. It's, it's not going to replace jobs. Um, it's going to take tasks that were previously too expensive and too capital intense and make them cheap enough for people to engage in. So take, uh, take deep mining, for example. In 2012, South Africa had a strike. The gold, the gold miners had a strike because the, the mines are getting freaking dangerous over there. Um, the gold used to be really low-hanging fruit. You just like scoop up full of dirt and you probably had gold in it. Um, but that was 40 years ago. Right now, those mines are about two miles into the earth. Now, I don't know if, if you've ever been in a cave before, but two miles into the earth usually means if there's a mistake, you're dead. There's, there's no elevator. <laughs> there's no stairway. There's no emergency exit. Two miles in, anything happens, pretty much everyone's dead. So it's very, very not safe. Um, and so they went on strike and actually affected world prices of gold pretty uh, horrendously. But if you had robot workers, well, two miles doesn't mean shit. Two miles, why not make it 20 miles? Why not make it 50 miles? Oh, and by the way, now that you're digging that um, deeply, now you're under the water table. So what you have now is this massive hole that used to be a, a reserve uh, for whatever ore you were extracting. It's under the water table, which means you can throw as much trash as you want into it. So now you have a landfill. Bang. So you can now sell your... your hole that you dug into the ground as an asset in and of itself. It can now become a data center at certain levels if the temperature's right. So this, this deep hole that is previously cannot be uh, made possible by humans because it's just outright dangerous um, now becomes just a standard operating procedure for the economy as a whole. You now have you, countries can build assets underground because they have, they have the ability to create those assets now. And, and the same is true if going down, uh, digging into the dirt um, provides an asset, then then there's another task, and that's going up. Um, this, is, this is a bit farsighted, but I wake up every morning and I visit a website. It's called howmanypeopleareinspacerightnow.com. It's a very long name. Uh, and the number usually varies between three and six, which is an outright embarrassment. Um, we have six billion people on this planet, and if there's six people in space, that means for every billion people, we can put one pair of hands in space. That's, uh, I don't care what Elon Musk has to say about it. Um, that's just not acceptable. That's completely unacceptable. Uh, but there's reason for that because humans in space is a bad idea. Our biology doesn't really sit well with it. Um, we can't even gestate in space. Uh, zero G kind of wipes out the fetus. The only things that can actually give birth in zero G are fish. That's about it. Nothing else can do it. Uh, not birds, not lizards, nothing, just, just fish. That's not useful. <laughs> can't make fish do work. <laughs> so, so to get things that do work in space, the only thing we know that can do work are humans, but humans in zero G don't come well. They don't tell you when the astronauts come down from zero G that their brains are foggy. That's, that's not good PR. They don't tell you their cognition's actually impaired, but it is. They don't tell you their bones are brittle because it is zero G, but it is. It's very unhealthy to be up there. But 
if you have robots, now you can send huge amounts of labor into the stars. You can actually go out there and mine asteroids. You can build industrial facilities on other terrestrial uh, locations. And now everything that was previously not possible before becomes suddenly possible. So without a firm understanding of what becomes viable when the capital expenditures of those potentials aren't properly understood or addressed or given their not a necessary credence, my fear is that you will have a very haphazard and unnecessarily haphazard approach to this uh, where either the demons of protectionism will come in and say, well, we have to protect the, the, the currency arrangement or the fiscal arrangement or, or some labor obligation. Um, and therefore we will limit the amount of innovation we'll bring to our economy or the other way around of it, where people will overly robotize say China, for example, who has done exactly that. And what they've done is they've created this overheated economy with not enough consumers. So it's, it, it can go bad in either way. And if it goes bad in a way where it busts and wipes out stuff, it's going to leave a very sour taste in a lot of mouths. So if, if, the, if, the, if the robotic economics isn't properly mapped or understood, then it just gets unnecessarily delayed. It gets mismanaged. People make mistakes, and they don't have to. If I can figure this out as a landscaper, <laughs> why, can't, why can't the World Bank figure it out? <laughs> So, so that's kind of, that's my fear. Do you think uh, there are you know, like politicians or leaders, business leaders that are considering these realities with uh, robotics? Cause from what I'm gathering, it just seems like we have a pretty, we feel like we have a pretty solid understanding of the nature of the world around us and what humans can impact in that world around us. Uh, but when you introduce this new variable, it's really like a 10x multiplier. Like when you introduce the limitless capacity of robotics, uh, it sort of, it unlocks all these different things that we never considered before. Do you know of, you know, it, I don't know, do you know of many uh, business leaders or, or, or politicians or world leaders that are thinking of this kind of stuff? Or do you think it's vastly overlooked? It's vastly overlooked, but there are some people spearheading this in a transitionary way. Uh, a lot of the Silicon Valley players are starting to cozy up to the DOD and to the U.S. government, and they're sort of promising what I'm talking about, where you can uh, take Jeff Bezos, for example. Um, he struck a deal with the CIA, got his $400 million, I think, to, to then buy out WAPO and uh, start bringing in the cloud server for the CIA. Um, that's, uh, unfortunately, when world leaders start thinking about this stuff, you are disrupting already established arrangements of, of power distribution. So say the CIA finally gets around to having a cloud server. The next obvious question is, well, do they need the NSA? Why can't they do their own data, uh, mining and comprehension and signal and SIGINT stuff in house? They finally have the resources for it. They don't have to go through appropriations committees or, or come through their, uh, black budget from the heroin trade. They don't have to do all that stuff, uh, and kind of like negotiate the, their, their HSBC channels to go acquire, uh, NSA resources, et cetera, et cetera. They can just outright spin it. Uh, on their own terms. And what do they need the NSA for then? So at that point, what happens is that 
the, the rush to even build robotic infrastructure becomes a power fight in and of itself, which can actually hinder it. Um, it, it for example, if, if, uh, if Jeff Bezos is able to secure the cloud contract, that means it secures the IT and the data uh, center stuff and a lot of the database stuff. Well, that was formerly the terrain of, of Oracle, of, of Larry Ellison's Oracle. So now there's a pissing contest between two titans, two billionaires. Uh, you have Oracle versus uh, Bezos. And, and that's just going to turn. That's been a shitstorm the entire time uh, since Trump got elected. It's, it's been like this like Praetorian pissing match. Um, and that's been going on. So, so those type of turf wars, unfortunately, have to get fought out, uh, which can destabilize the implementation of, of robotic, um, um, what I'm calling effectively robotic nationalism. Uh, it, it's world leaders who aren't thinking about it aren't too much of a threat. The world, the ones who do realize the tremendous outcomes this, this results in, they're fighting to the death over it behind the scenes right now, and it's starting to spill over. So, so it has to be really carefully managed in the, in the, don't, in the, in the sort of walk on eggshells around Titans approach, and really only a handful of people know how to do it, and the vast majority of them are just hopeless. Tell me more about this battle between Amazon and Oracle. I'm curious, like what, what events uh, have you seen, you know, since Trump was inaugurated? What, what sort of events should, could people look out for to see sort of how this is playing out? You want to look for Devin Nunes. Um, Devin Nunes was put into place by Larry Ellison. He funded him uh, pretty heavily. Uh, CIA backed uh, Bezos, gave him a lot of money for that one, um, and also gave a non-compete sort of saying, uh, a non-compete without calling it a non-compete, basically saying, uh, we need a cloud service that can, the CIA would put the work order out and they said, we need a cloud service that can do X, Y, Z. Uh, and it just happens that Amazon can do X, Y, Z and nobody else can do it. Uh, so that's, that's basically a non-compete without actually calling it such. Um, so that's, that, those are the things that took place. Um, and Nunez, if you've been following the, the slug fest that has been the, the, the Mueller report, he's been an essential figure in that entire play. Uh, you'll see Oracle, officials brought into the White House more frequently, I suspect, uh, than they have been. Uh, Peter Thiel has been assisting uh, this, the current CEO and who's been more than happy to help Trump in his fight against um, Bezos. So this is uh, also Bezos had a very unfortunate plane crash on his island of Lanai about a couple months ago. Is a couple people of Lanai got killed. I forget the full details. Um, but it's, it's been a slug match, but, but this is, uh, this sort of Titanic play is, is par for the course, unfortunately for this transition, it has to play out. Um, and it's just going to be ugly, uh, because they just have so many damn resources to throw at it that it can, it can go on for a long time. Meanwhile, the Chinese can do something about that. I'm sure they can exacerbate that conflict. Uh, the Russians are probably laughing. They're sitting on 2 million drones. Most people don't know that Ru uh, the Russians are sitting on 2 million drones are probably not very good drones, but they're sitting on them. They have them. They can who knows what they're going to do with them. It's, they're probably crap, but it's first generation, Model T, whatever. Uh, the European Union is slowly getting its act together, uh, embracing a sort of like uh, cognitive mercantilism where they're starting to excise Google and get rid of Facebook and sort of find them and kind of promote their own local IT solutions and their local internet and that sort of thing. Um, they're slowly getting their act together. India's running around blowing up satellites in space. <laughs> like, like they just basically shotgunned the entire lower, um, 
Earth orbit. So you take out a satellite, even if it's your own, they generated 6,200 pieces that are now flying at approximately 20,000 miles per hour around LEO. It's going to knock out satellites left, right, and center. But this is, this is all part of that titanic struggle that's taking place between these two players and spreading out across the geopolitical uh, because of the vast reach of the CIA, because of the vast reach of the NSA and, and American sort of, I guess, imperial uh, ambitions. Uh, so this is this is playing out in, in very unstable ways, and uh, it's it's going to be a every so often you're going to have a fit and start. You're going to have uh, a sort of like oh wow that's an interesting use of robotics in between a whole bunch of political poo flinging to put it uh, bluntly. Um, I, I don't. It's not going to be a clean transition. It's certainly not going to be an orderly one. And I don't think he, he can even be politically arranged because the people who are in control of, of the future of robotic infrastructure are so ro- unbelievably untouchable um, that you can't even negotiate with them to be reasonable about it. So it's, it's, it's going to take some thinking. It's going to take some chess playing. Who, who are those people that are driving the robotic development? But most of Silicon Valley. Uh, a lot of the arrangement there, Google is trying to push that sort of stuff out. They spent around $8 billion in robotics acquisitions between 2000 and I, I'm going to get this wrong. 2014, 2016, um, after $8 billion, they reached a conclusion and that conclusion was robotics is hard. And that's true. It is very hard. Um, even trying to make a computer that does what the human eye does is next to impossible. Uh, and yet the human eye or the the optical nerve and, and the visual cortex have been around for 2 billion years. Uh, we appear to have jumped the gun into thinking we can, we can do what the eye does and we're just completely horribly off base. Um, so they're, they're getting stuck in the mire. Their wheels are spinning from the technology front. Meanwhile, the Titans are, are kind of like clearing the road and, and laying claim the infrastructure as it's, as it's, uh, as far as they could see it. Um, but the technologists are not going to be able to keep up. The, the fundamental premise of the neural network, that there are core assumptions and there are core limitations to how neural networks work. Um, the popular mythology is that a machine brain will be similar to a human brain or worse, uh, that a machine brain will operate logically. But none of those assumptions are even remotely true. Um, uh, neural networks operate by statistics. They're, they're, ba- they're effectively Bayesian by default. Um, they don't, they don't turn around and say, well, this is a, uh, they don't point at a glass or they don't point at a car and say, that's a car. They point at a car and they say, I'm 97% sure that's a car. That's very different than what you and I do. Um, if, if you're in the room with me, I'm, I'm going to look at you and say, oh, that's Patrick. I'm not going to say I'm 80% sure that's Patrick, but 20% of you looks like Tim. I'm not, <laughs> that's not a conclusion I'd come to, right? Um, so, so neural networks, that's how they operate. They operate on statistical inference. And... Uh, that doesn't work. <laughs> that just does not work. Evolution has determined that that's a bad approach. Um, and we see it when you have these self-driving cars. Uh, they're trying to get these things to work in snow in every condition. They're trying to get them to work in, in ice and fog. But, dude, they, they, they were so desperate to get that working. By they, I mean Ford? Was it Ford or Tesla? I forget who pulled this off. I think it was Tesla. They were so desperate to get these cars working in the snow that when the road would get snowed out and the um, they hadn't plowed the road, 
Tesla, the, the cars would switch from their normal six sensors to 26 sensors. And the way they would try to find the road is they would look for poles coming out of the snow. They would compare it to Google Maps, and then they would try to do a measurement about how far the curb was from the pole based on the Google Maps reading. And wow. that's how the cars would figure out where they were in the snow. And that, that is not reliable. <laughs> no insurance company is going to turn around and say, you know what, that's good enough. I'll put that in my risk pool. That's just not going to happen. Uh, and so the, the, the promise of AI is... is it's going to backfire pretty horribly because it's not delivering. It's just on certain domains of problems, it's great. But when it comes to reality, Google paid the price and they were right. Reality is hard. I find that stuff really interesting because it's slowly sort of seeping into our, our lives. You know, like an example is like with, uh, you know, if you have a Tesla or even any other really like luxury car these days, if you're, uh, you know, they have like sensors for when you're, getting close to the curb or close to the, you know, if you're parking the car behind you or in front of you or whatever. And uh, even something as simple as that, you know, you can, uh, if you go to park without that, you assume that there's something wrong. You know, it starts to sort of mess with your own default, uh, you know, mechanism for understanding like parking, you know, because you're assuming that the, the technology should step in if you're about to make a mistake. And uh, I've, I guess I'm curious if you have ever thought of how we can sort of combat that, that sort of mental laziness that comes with these technological improvements. Yeah. Well, we, since the dawn of the Neolithic period, we've always been sort of improving our situation by finding shortcuts, whether it's eating the dirty fruit or eating the clean fruit, that was technically a shortcut for calories. Um, and we've been, we've been playing that game ever since for a very long time. Um, the, the mental laziness, I'm not so sure. Um, I don't, I, I know what you're describing when you say that. Um, I, but I think that needs to be taken in the context of the overall drive to find shortcuts. Um, it's something we've always done across cultures, across races, across genders. We've always tried to find shortcuts. It's just, it's a neural compulsion to a degree um and it, could you explain the uh, the dirty fruit versus clean fruit thing yeah yeah right so um even otters learn to to sort of like uh, uh no raccoons raccoons will wash their fruit uh ra- will wash the food they have there's an a if <laughs> to see the uh, an adorable video of that there's a video of a raccoon trying to wash cotton candy it's very sad <laughs> <laughs> um but uh when given the option to eat the dirty fruit or the clean fruit uh, humans pick the one that looks brighter in colors and doesn't look like it's rotting. That's technically a shortcut. That's technically getting better calories and reducing your exposure to risk. Um, and we've been making that decision ever since the dawn of time, really, ever since the dawn of our cognition. So, so w- I, I, the, the, the mental laziness is an interesting side effect of a society that's getting... Uh, Damn it, I said in a society. I shouldn't be saying that's a, that's a terrible meme. Uh, as the human condition gets more comfortable and more fecund about its technological dependencies, uh, so like uh, the old Joe Rogan joke is, uh, I just drop you in the wood with an ax, how long until you send me an email? Um, 
the uh, the dependencies we have for the vast majority of us, and including developing nations, is rather staggering. If you sat there and took inventory, um, the, the our crops absolutely require fertilizer now. We need nitrogen. There's you can't hold the population we have without nitrogen uh, or nitrates of any kind. So that's a massive technological uh, requirement. Oh, and you need to isolate the nitrates from their raw materials. So that's a technical requirement. So now you need chemists and engineers and that's a technical requirement. So, so we, we build this kind of like very fragile pyramid of technical dependencies as we go. But every so often that pyramid kind of collapses because the dependencies outstrip the ability for the next generation to even get them. And ideally uh, AI is, is going to magically solve that problem for us, but that's not true either. Uh, if, if you bring in, a bunch of magical robots that kind of take all the work away from you, then they're going to take all the work away from you. They're going to take all the spoils away from you and they're going to take all the opportunity away from you. And you'll be too stupid to even realize they're doing it. And the thing is, these, these robots don't even need to, uh, they don't even need to overtly go after you for this sort of thing. They don't even need to force your hand. Any AI that even, all the fear is about robots running around just like, being kinetic weapons of revenge. It's, it's so it's, it's, it's James Cameron Terminator, uh, as I mentioned earlier, and that's the, that's the popular consensus, but that's not what an AI would do if it wanted to conquer um, that sort of arrangement. Uh, it, it's not the mental laziness. It's, it's the, that's the problem. It's the realization that if AI wanted to conquer, it would just use propaganda. It wouldn't need bullets. It wouldn't need guns. It would just use words. That's all it would need because then it can make propaganda. It can convince people that something's happening when it isn't. It could lie. It could interfere with banking exchanges. It can identify major players in the Federal Reserve. It can go after Saudi princes with nothing more than words uh, and, and cleverly delaying them and, and sending signals when actually they don't need to exist. It doesn't need to fire a single bullet. It can take over the entirety of, of human civilization with just words alone. You don't even need to put it on tracks. It doesn't even need to walk. It just, it doesn't even need an internet connection. It could probably trick the technicians that are fixing it into doing its bidding for it. There, there's, it doesn't, the AI that is frightening isn't the kinetic stuff. It's the AI that understands human emotion. That's the one that is just left off the radar entirely. And that's the one that panics me more than anything. Where do you think we are in relation to that as far as a, a time scale? We are building the infrastructure for an emotionally aware AI already. Things like Facebook and social media and everything else, that's, that's creating the management of, of reality tunnels. Uh, reality tunnels are a concept where, um, take your Google searches, for example, uh, Google isn't returning the searches um, that are true. It's returning the searches that it thinks you want to see. So if you're searching for, I don't know, bars, it's going to take into account that you're 30 something. Uh, you're living in the area you're living in and it's going to show results tailored based on those conditions. It's not going to show you bars in India. It's not going to show you bars in Japan. It's going to show you bars around you. It's probably not even going to show you noisy ones because you get older and that's kind of not our thing. 
Um, so it's going to it's going to account for all those things, and it's going to show you the results that fit your bias, your confirmation bias, your metadata uh, signature, and and that's going to form what's called your reality tunnel, where the only reality you see is whatever the oracles tell you, is whatever the AI tells you. So so we're in the middle of building that out now, and it's it's good lord, it's like the Tower of Babel, except on an individual scale where everybody is their own language, and uh, it's just these like these pipelines of reality that everybody is walking down. Um, and once you that, once that sort of reality tunnel infrastructure is in place, then you can have a AI that understands human emotions really steer the game much more effectively. So I don't know. I'd give it maybe like ten more years, maybe tops. I have a technology that I could accelerate it to like three. It, it's 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 pretty shocking stuff. What's your technology? Neanderthal brains. Tell me about it. Yeah. So. Uh, I wrote a book about all the things I'm telling you now. It's called The Empath, uh, where I said basically what I just said. It's not the military robots you need to worry about because I studied them extensively. We covered that in the first half hour. Um, it's, the, it's the emotional robot. Uh, and so I realized that just as AI is having problems with human vision, it's also going to have problems with human emotion. And the reason for those problems is rather obvious. AI has about maybe a 50-year history, going back to the von uh, Neumann machine, possibly a little bit before that. Uh, the neurons been around for 2 billion years. It's battle tested um, extensively and it's very good at what it does. So I figure, well, if you want to understand human emotions, just use the damn thing that sees human emotions, which happens to be the human brain. But unfortunately, well, actually fortunately, uh, it's illegal and unethical. You can't just grab someone's brain and put it in a computer. That's a terrible idea. Um, also highly illegal though I don't think the Chinese care. Um, instead, why don't you use our cousins? Because we're the 23rd hominid. Um, we have Neanderthal, and we have the Peking man, and we have Osteopithecine, et cetera, et cetera. Legally, none of those qualify as humans. So you can do whatever you want to their brain, technically. Um, you don't want to grow the full brain because you need the full body for the full brain, and you just don't want cavemen running around. That's just creepy. Um, instead, what you can do is you can grow a very small part of the brain. It's called an organoid. It's about the size of a pea. And it's basically, uh, it does have neural activity. I've been to the lab. They do fantastic work uh, down at um, University of California, San Diego. I've, uh, I've seen these brains. They are fascinating. Um, I got to speak to the professor there who's in charge of his lab, uh, Allison Mutri, I believe his name is. And uh, he was going on the road where you have to grow more and more of the body to make the brain useful. But I gave him a shortcut. I said, you don't need to do that. From my book, you do X, Y, Z. And he said, holy crap, that actually works. I said, yes, we'll stay in touch. Um, so you don't need to grow the full brain, thankfully, which is a good thing. Um, so in San Diego, they're growing Neanderthal brains. Yes, that's correct. Wow. Yeah. And so what, what are the, uh, so beyond just like testing, uh, or I guess, could you dive in deeper into like what the repercussions of that could be? Oh, of course. Uh, the brain has already been attached to robots and it's able to explore the world and it's robot chassis. Um, so that's fun. Uh, the, the more important research is the ability to put it like this. Um, Think of the 6 billion, 7 billion people on this earth, each one with a cell phone, maybe two cell phones, and assume that the microphone of each one of those is on. 
and it's being recorded and it's sent not just to the Utah center for the NSA, but to some commercial advertising Titan who wants to do sentiment analysis for product placement. So it's collecting all the voices and all the data and stuff, but it's a tremendous amount of noise. I mean, you got music in the background, you got seagulls. I don't fucking know. You got a bunch of stuff happening. Um, you have a lot of data that's coming in and the vast majority of data is noise. Uh, so how do you extract meaningful actionable knowledge from a sea of endless infinite data. That's, that's what the problem has always been when it came to mass data collection and still is. Um, but with these Neanderthal brains, what ends up happening is the brain is already designed to do that. It's already wired to do that. Um, it will take all the signals in and it will extract emotional context out of all of it. You and I are doing that right now. Uh, we just don't know we're doing it. Um, that's true for all hominid brains. They'll, they'll all do this. And even to some degree, um, uh, chimpanzee as well. So, so what this means is you can extract emotional knowledge and actionable data from that stream, that massive trunk line, that pipeline of data collection that is already powering Silicon Valley. Um, you can use these brains to pull precisely the emotional signals that drive consumer behavior that drive investment that drive uh human reasoning and that sort of thing and you get a much better understanding because instead of analyzing the whole the whole of all the data collection you're analyzing everything that's pre-filtered from an emotional context already sorted for you in advance and that's much easier to manage so you're saying the data that you could you could collect all the data which includes all the noise and then you could pull the out of that noise. I'm sorry, I believe you dropped off. Okay, sorry. Uh, so you can collect all the data, all the noise, and then from that you can pull out the emotionally driven or maybe uh, the more emotionally, like uh, the more emotional tones from that yes. noise. Is that what That's you're saying? Right. The emotional context. That's right. And so in the, the emotional context, so like if you can determine based off the tone, what emotion someone is feeling so you can determine sort of what kind of a buyer or what kind of product they might, you might be able to, you know, sort of match with them based off of their, their emotional tone. That's right. Once you have the emotional context, you can shape their reality tunnel accordingly. And so this is kind of, I mean, cause this, this stuff really freaks me out. I think it's something that a lot of people aren't aware of. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sure, you know, with your body of knowledge here, you, you've probably heard of that thing where target, understood people's buying patterns, you know, mm -hmm. way ahead of time to the point where they were sending a, uh, you know, like a, a pregnant teenager, uh, a, you know, weekly, uh, you know, coupon magazine or whatever with things for diapers and childcare and stuff before she even knew she was pregnant. <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting for the, for the marketers to, uh, to start sending uh, divorce lawyers to people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> But I mean, I find that because it seems uh, so alien that that we can take this data, you know, about human emotions and, and just convert it into sales like that, you know, because it seems like something that uh, was never meant to be commercialized and and uh, or this invasive because it's at the point now where, you know, everyone does have a phone in their pocket with two microphones and everyone knows that when you talk about a product, you get an ad for it on Instagram. Mm hmm. They know it now. Uh, ten years ago, it was a conspiracy theory. Yeah, ten years ago, it was a conspiracy theory. What, what do you think is something that now people would say is a conspiracy theory, but in ten years, you're going to be like, "I told you so." 
the CIA NSA shadow war, they'll say they'll they'll no longer believe that can be a conspiracy. So what is that shadow war? Could you could you explain that? Yeah, the 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 one I had previously described involving Bezos and and uh, the CIA trying to create their own sort of NSA infrastructure outside of the NSA. That'll be that'll be common knowledge in ten years. Um, you'll have uh, this sort of when you have this infrastructure of emotional context extraction, you have entire crafts of people. Uh, the very nature of psychology changes fundamentally. Uh, you're not you're not doing psychology based on the the DSM. You're not doing psychology based on a bunch of academics trying to gatekeep their you know their tenure. Um, what you'll end up with is a psychology that's data driven, uh, primarily by a profit. Uh, concluded these following things, and so this is the behavior. So what ends up happening is you no longer have like syndromes, and you no longer have things that are like uh, um, uh, disabilities per se. Uh, behavior becomes this fluid fleeting thing it becomes it becomes categorized based upon whatever the market's willing to buy so you'll say oh well uh, under these conditions uh this herd of people uh felt this way at this time under these uh events and so that's the syndrome we're selling effectively you'll be selling syndromes to people who want to buy them you won't be categorizing them for health reasons you'll be weaponizing them for profit and that will no longer be conspiracy theory. That will just be how business is. So you're making me go there. And I'm going to ask a question that I, I don't even know if, if we want to go down this road. But um, I'm reading right now uh, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, his new book about the study of psychedelics. And, mm. and uh, you know, talked about some how some – syndrome, some things like depression and anxiety, you know, some of the people you interview in the book, uh, you know, believe can be handled with a dose of psycho psychedelics in a controlled environment. And I'm curious if you've considered the realities that, you know, we've been talking about here between robotics and, and pulling all this emotional data and uh, all those things and how they relate to psychedelics. Sure. Um, this brings me down to one of my favorite books of all time called Dune by Frank Herbert. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, that's, you're the second person to recommend it to me this week. So now I'm going to read it. I actually have it on my shelf. It's a sci-fi classic that you're talking about, right? It's a sci-fi classic that has no computers in it intentionally. Refuse to have technology of any sort. Uh, the basic premise is that people found this magical drug called the Spice Melange. And what it would do is it, would, it was highly addictive and it would change your eye color to be a deep blue, and it would give you this cognitive prescience, this ability to control uh, things that otherwise are outside of your awareness. The idea was that it would expand your mind to be consciously aware of every part of your brain. So now, instead of having your autonomous functions of your brain doing whatever they want, you physically can control them to the point where there's different sects and houses of people based upon how they are addicted to spice. Uh, the Benny Gesserit, for example, Benny Gesserit, for example, they are addicted to spice in a way that lets them control their bodies down to the cellular level. So there's uh, one particular group of Benny Gesserit, uh, one particular person uh, who keeps STD, very, very violent STDs trapped in her body in the event that she gets taken advantage of during an operation so that she can deploy these STDs on demand into whoever's raping her crazy stuff right i mean controlling your cells to the point you can do that they can change the gender of the baby i mean it's nuts 
Um, um, and then you have the you have the other way of looking at it, where you have the navigators who, in the future, where if you can't have computers, how can you compute uh, traveling between the stars? If you make a mistake, you're lost forever. Um, and so what these uh, navigators do is they act as human computers to make the astrological calculations and use it. So this is a this is a future of that sort of like instead of taking psychedelics as this sort of like oh it's this cute little rebel culture and it makes me feel good they Frank Herbert takes it to this level where it's like galactic critical infrastructure um, where you need the psychedelics in order for humanity to even survive anymore um, and so when we start playing the game you take my Neanderthal technology for example not mine uh, but what I'm assisting and augmenting. Um, if you take that, there is a way uh, to where you can connect multiple brains of multiple species and they'll operate as one brain. So I can have a Neanderthal brain connecting to a squid brain, connected to a seal brain, connected to a bat brain, and the entire thing will operate as one brain. That sounds <laughs> like it's loaded with... Uh... Variables, tons of variables, in which psychedelics, movies. in which psychedelics will probably play a pivotal role in. How so? Because uh, you may have drugs that are illegal to humans, but are not illegal to bats. So if you put it in the bat brain, you can control the outcome. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like from the outset, just like a, some sort of like Frankenstein horror movie. It does. Uh, but it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't be so flippant about it. Uh, the technology only became possible maybe a year ago. Um, so it, I've been, I've been mired in this sort of perspective for a long time. And if my flippancy isn't because I've totally disconnected my humanity, uh, it's because it, to me, it's at this point, it's basically a technical problem. Um, but I understand the, the horror that's associated with it because it's very weird. It really is when you think about it until you see it for yourself and you're like, Oh God, this is actually happening. So it, so it's you kind of have to make your peace with it to, to some degree. Certainly. Um, I'm curious how you got into the Neanderthal brain stuff in the first place. Yeah. So uh, when I was looking into the whole idea of this emotional connection, uh, an AI going back to that horrifying scenario where an AI can just take over a civilization with words alone, as long as it understood human emotions, that's all it needed to do. But I realized um, that, just as we're having problems with AI understanding, you know, vision, <laughs> basic navigation of complex spaces, it's going to have problems with human emotions too. Uh, because as rampant as emotions are and as confident as we are with them, and as much as we think we know about them, we cannot even begin to categorize them. We can't even come up with a list of emotions. That sounds embarrassing. Whoever's listening to that is probably up in a harumph right now. It's like, that's impossible. Of course we can categorize emotions. So I dare you. Go ahead. Categorize emotions and then share it with someone and see if they agree. And nine times out of 10, they won't. They won't agree with your list. And that's kind of confounding. That's very strange. You think, well, there's clearly a finite list of emotions and we all agree that we have them. But the moment you try to build that list, you'll rapidly realize that we don't agree. And yet, we're able to communicate emotionally, even though we can't put a name to this. It's kind of a weird problem. It's kind of like asking yourself to write down all the words you know. You couldn't do it. It's, it you just couldn't do it. The same thing's true for emotions. You can't write down all the emotions you have. You can't organize it in set theory. Uh, and once I realized set theory didn't apply to emotions, oh boy, the brakes came off. Uh, I, I had to look at the problem very differently. What, what is set theory? 
set set theory is a math uh, you've seen a spreadsheet i'm sure i've definitely seen a spreadsheet sure so set theory one or two uh, set theory is uh the operations that manipulate a spreadsheet or a matrix or uh, a collection of data gotcha okay right so um uh, and that's that's a very rough-handed way of putting it, and I'm sure I'm going to get yelled at for being so pedestrian about it. But screw you. Um, the uh, <laughs> um, once once you realize emotions can't be cannot be expressed uh, thoroughly by set theory, by category theory, by its bastard child probability, um, you, you have to really look at the problem very differently. Um, and so I concluded that AI will never be able to properly represent human emotions and that the only way to do it was to use a hominid brain. Wow. And I wrote that in 2005. And that's in your book, Empath? The Empath, that's correct, which the I never Empath. released. And nobody's ever going to read it. <laughs> it's never going to happen. <laughs> Too busy turning it into a business. <laughs> well, I want to talk about the business, but before that, I realized we, we may have overlooked something that I feel like some people might find hard to understand, which is the idea of the AI, you know, uh, ruling humanity through propaganda. And yeah. I feel like this is something that it's a reality that most people aren't aware of, which is sort of like truth is not, you know, it, it, like we don't live in a truth based world anymore. I'm not when, and this is something that I feel like uh, people like Scott Adams have sort of brought to the, you know, the main stage people that people, you know, with the last election and with, uh, fake news and all these different things, people have really started to look deeper into persuasion in a way that probably they never did before. When did you first become aware of that reality? And, and could you talk a little bit about that stuff? Oh, man. I had a very troubled and difficult youth. I was subjected to the very worst of human nature before I was five. Um, and when you see adults who are supposed to take care of you acting as feral monsters, uh, you learn very quickly how to read body language and how to read intonations, how to understand tone. Um, they can say one thing, but you know beneath it all they mean another. And so you, you I learned at least very early on that uh, appearances are always deceiving. Um, and that's just what you learn just to survive that situation where they say one thing, but their body language suggests something else. Uh, and so I learned very early on that that was the case. So I, I suppose I've always been disconnected between truth and the, the perception of truth. And so to build on that a little bit in the direction of like how an AI could use information against people. I mean, we're, we're already sort of seeing people using information against people and how that plays out. You know, you can get a lot of people to believe something. You'll get a lot of people to recognize that it's, it's a faulty belief. Uh, and we're in the middle of that sort of battle right now for, uh, you know, real truth. How, what changes when you bring in AI? Like, how does that change the game? AI can take propaganda and personalize it at an industrial scale. So it wouldn't be creating propaganda in the sense that you and I know it. It wouldn't be like WPA or Stalin propaganda. Um, it would be confirmation bias. Um, it would be taking your history 
of all of your interactions on social media, uh, all of your interactions that are collected by data farms and building or comprehending what the reality tunnel of that is. So understanding the velocity of your bias, where it's going to go next. And then what you're doing, what any good AI will do is it will set an objective, uh, whether that's the acquisition of resources, whether that's the destruction of a competitive AI, whatever the case may be. Um, and it will then proceed to vie for the human resources to assist its goals. So if AI1 wants to beat AI2, it's in AI1's best interest to accumulate enough people to vote for resources that benefit AI1 or wipe out the competition that's supporting AI2 or however you choose to organize uh, human action, uh, however you choose to do it. Um, so all AI has to do is appeal to the confirmation bias of people and that's it and they'll do it. It's sadly that simple. I'm trying to imagine a reality, like, you know, you know, a, a, a challenge to that, you know, some sort of, like, I feel like people, they must know, you know, they must be able to, because if the AI is tailoring information directly to their confirmation bias, you know, would that same tailoring work for someone's friends and their family members, other people that they listen to be beyond just whatever their information source is, if, if an AI was in their phone or something like that. How many people have blocked you after Trump was elected? Um, I am not, uh, you know, I'm not really in the realm of getting uh, blocked over my political opinion just yet. Um, so fortunately, I don't think any did, but I know. You're, you're, you're a lucky soul. <laughs> you're, you're a rare soul, and I think you conduct yourself with a dignity that most of us don't have, and I'm actually envious. <laughs> I'm getting there. <laughs> uh, this, this is a... Uh, when it comes to friends and family, even that can be severed through reality tunnel management, unfortunately. So let's talk about this reality tunnel management. Where, where could, like, if we want to place this idea into someone's life as it is today, like a, in a relatable way, what, what is, uh, how could we do that? Sure. Let me read the, uh, the origin of, uh, origin of the reality tunnel concept comes from, speaking of psychedelics, comes from Timothy Leary. Uh, further expanded upon, I'm reading from the Wikipedia, uh, further expanded upon by uh, Robert Anton Wilson. And here's the actual, from, from the book called Neuropolitics, uh, 1977. Uh, the gene pool politics which monitor power struggles among terrestrial humanity are transcended in this info world. What that means is whatever your genes are, whatever your lineage is, it doesn't matter because the info world overlays it and dominates. Uh, for example, seen as static artificial charades, one is neither coercively manipulated into another's territorial reality, nor forced to struggle against it with reciprocal game playing, the usual soap opera dramatics. One simply elects consciously whether or not to share the other's reality tunnel. By default, the reality tunnels do not intersect unless they are forced to. On social media, you're forced to because of attention economics. You're competing for uh, likes and you're competing for metrics and, and you want to make sure that your content's being seen. And by doing that, you have to barge headfirst into other people's reality tunnels. By default, they're, they're non-combative. Um, but if you want to win a game or in the, in the sake of the attention economic game, then you have to start smashing these reality tunnels together and usually as violently, as haphazardly as clickbait's been doing. So um, 
if you if that's the heady version, so let me let me break it down to the to the pragmatic. Um, Please, uh, if we all harbor ideas that we believe, and we don't need other people to confirm the belief, we all have those one way or another. Uh, a common one would be a belief in a afterlife or a belief in some spirits. Uh, another belief would be what your favorite whiskey is. These are these are things you like. And you like them. But like, for example, my favorite cigar is the Rocky Patel Reserve 1990. That's the one that works for my body. I could be convinced otherwise, but that's what I prefer. That's my confirmation bias. I walk into a humidor. I pick that cigar. I don't even look at the rest of the section. And I smoke that. And I've been smoking that same cigar for 13 freaking years. Um, and I know it's good. I don't need to convince other people that that's a good cigar. I don't need to do that because my reality tunnel says that's mine. That's part of my reality. I don't need to colonize other people's reality tunnels. So that, that sort of like that preference, um, that idea that this is, this is who I am, everybody has that. And that's your fundamental building blocks of your reality tunnel. But unfortunately, because it's so fundamental to your identity, it's also incredibly difficult to dislodge. And so this is where I'm finding... You know, I find this stuff super interesting. You know, people—I'll oh, use the term "reality tunnel" and their identity, um, and how that relates to, you know, even like technology in the state that it is today. Whereas a lot of people are sort of going through. It seems like everybody, in some way or another, goes through sort of like an, ident an ongoing identity crisis where they identify certain items or brands or uh, things with like who they are. And it's at the point now where a company can basically try to identify you as a member of their community, you know, their brand. You know, if you're someone that likes to go camping, you might start getting ads from REI and they want you to identify with REI as, you know, you're sort of one of them and they can do that on a scale that was never doable before. And it's very, it's direct, you know, you can direct market to somebody on Facebook who has interest in any of those categories. Whereas before in advertising, you could only advertise to the general population and hope that, you know, some people recognized your, your product and identified with it. Uh, this is another thing that I'm curious, like, is it, is this sort of where you just see this sort of unfolding and going sort of off a cliff with AI where it can sort of choose what kind of people based off your interests or to identify what kind of products with you? that you identify, you know, that you add those to your reality tunnel? Absolutely. The, uh, the, the key word in that is brand. Uh, most of us think of brand as a monolithic concept. We think uh, McDonald's as a brand. It's a common brand or a public brand. The future is private brands. It's not public brands. It's not brands competing in the public space. It's, it's brands competing within the head of individuals. Um, yeah, it's like do the people make the brand or the brand make the people? In this case, the propaganda makes the brand. The people aren't even needed. Eventually you'll be able to even brand the AI trick that into buying your stuff too. Who knows? So it's, it's so it, it becomes a very absurd game. Um, and I think, I think that's the best way to describe it. It becomes absurdity. Uh, and I don't mean that in the incredulous sense. I mean that in the philosophical sense, the Camus sense, it, it becomes uh, absurdism uh, without restraint. Um, and that humans don't do well with sustained absurdity. Um, there's examples of that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what we call hedonistic cultures of the past, that's effectively sustained absurdity where uh, there was a time Roman citizens were, they could live just tax free. Uh, they just, that was it. I mean, uh, everyone else paid uh, the, the conquest of war paid for the, for the concerns of the state. But the Roman citizen uh, at some point was eventually never had to pay tax at all. Um, and so that just, at that point, it's, it's just effectively like it's a bronze age police state meets extreme hedonism to keep the police state going. It's a level of absurd. It's, it's absurd in the sense that you have brutal crackdowns where if you touch a Vestal Virgin, you're instantly executed on the spot. Vestal Virgins were the precursor to Catholic nuns. Um, uh, but uh, uh, you're allowed to kill a slave right there in the street. So it's, it's like this, it's, it's, it's things that are cognitively, they're only possible to hold in the cognition as long as you don't have to resolve for causality. As long as you don't try to relate these two things together, you'll be fine. Um, but the moment you start relating these things together, you're hit with an absurdity. Uh, you're hit with uh, mortality being sacred for some and mortality being useless for others. Uh, and that doesn't jive well with people. When you start playing games of mortality, uh, the very nature of the human condition shifts dramatically. Uh, as long as you can keep death out of the public sphere, uh, then people, you know, it doesn't activate their fight or flight. It doesn't activate uh, their, their drive to do something about it. Um, but the, uh, uh, when it comes to marketing, uh, the reason why I bring that up is because marketing will have to, as a, as a meta-marketing concept, you will have to deal with these competing brands that otherwise have no business being sold. So like, uh, um, take, uh, take your example with REI, right? You have, you have REI. And REI's best interest is to keep you as outdoors as humanly possible. Because the more you're outdoors, the more they need, you need to buy their stuff, right? Um, but then you're going to have a brand that's competing for you for video gaming, virtual gaming, where you just sit in a chair all day and you have a, VR, a pair of VR glasses strapped to you. Um, and, there's, and that market will seem absurd to someone on the outside. How are you going to do VR uh, when you're in the middle of the forest? You just, you just can't do it. Probably not yet. Um, but when you're in the middle of, when that sort of, when those brands collide, it's going to seem absurd only if you try to make the correlation. If you don't make the correlation, then it's not absurd at all. It's just reality. So, so it's important for marketers to make sure that the connections between their brands are never established because the moment you start playing that is the moment you start introducing cognitive dissonance and then it becomes very inefficient. And the same will be true with AI. AI will eventually learn that lesson as well. And just as when we first started this conversation, uh, not seeing death from the Iraq war uh, being shown on TV, as long as war isn't associated with death, then the war can exist in the background. And that's where all these brands want to be. They want to be in the background because that's where they're not being examined. That's not where they're being cross-referenced. And as long as that's happening, then you can, you can keep this game going for as long as possible. That just led me to think about, you know, like, uh, you notice a lot of brands sort of stay out of the fray. They stay out of sort of their, uh, the area where they could be examined. What, what do you make of brands like, let's take Gillette, who have recently uh, launched campaigns that are almost, it almost seems like they're specifically trying to rile people up. 
Right. So that's a, that's a different type of, that's a part of a larger campaign technique. So um, one, they're being pressured by the Dollar Shave Club. They're being crushed aggressively. Um, Dollar Shave Club is using, I think they're using unit economics to crush them. Uh, and Gillette is using traditional like warehouse stuff. So it's, so it's a, it's a competitive pressure for starters. Uh, two, when you're starting up that kind of campaign, you'll definitely want to start doing what's called A-B testing, uh, sort of prodding your audience, trying to figure out what reacts and what goes where. From a, from a reality tunnel perspective, what you're doing is you're harnessing uh, the different types of personalities and the different types of, of uh, reality tunnels. So they'll, they'll they, so the people who find this offensive become one collection of reality tunnel. The people who say this supports my political ideology becomes another reality tunnel. The people who aren't affected by it becomes another reality tunnel. Once you can isolate them down, then you can start poking and prodding their behavior at the individual level. So you see these mass bombastic things like your beach bod advertising campaign from that one company that escapes me or uh, the Gillette saying that men should be betas forever or whatever their approach was. Um, uh, this was, this is a, an attempt to take the pool of potential, cut it into large groups. And then once you have that large groups, then do micro targeting down to individual um, uh, reality tunnels. Wow. That's some fascinating stuff. Yeah. I think that I, I I'm just blown away uh, by this stuff in general, like sort of applied psychology and, and manipulating psychology. And then, you know, just seeing the advancements that we're able to make in our understanding of psychology and of the brain and how that affects, you know, how it really, uh, you know, affects our reality in, in a not so obvious way. I think it's just uh, any time you can talk about this stuff and be able to bring it to the front of someone's uh, mind and to the front of their consciousness, I think is really helpful. And uh I guess the next thing I'm curious about is like, wh like, what do we do with this information? Now that we know these things are coming, <laughs> what do you do about it? Well, if you really want to add emphasis to that question, let me take you to the, the most final extent. There's two outcomes that people need to very much concern themselves with. Uh, the first one is as AI understands emotions and starts manipulating us and starts taking more and more of civilization for itself, eventually AI will come to the one conclusion that we all came to a long time ago about how to really, really put that into hyperdrive. And one day, probably in my lifetime, you will have AI that I'm describing create religion. It will create a religion and humans will go for it. They will absolutely go for it. They will have martyrs, they will have holidays, they will have histories. It will all be laid out and they will go for it. We will absolutely go for that religion, without a doubt in my mind. The second event you need to worry about is if the AIs in the act of creating religions get so good at it that they realize they have to improve their religions. Now it's competitive, uh, Islam versus Christianity, uh, Judaism versus Christianity, whatever the case. Now they get competitive. And the only way to increase your competitive edge in that game is the AIs start believing the religions themselves. This is where things get really difficult to figure out how it, how it evolves. This is where it gets really off the rails. Um, and I've been working on that one in silence for a while. Happy to share it uh, now uh, because trying to share this through text is freaking impossible I, I suppose i'm a better speaker but um those two scenarios are absolutely coming down to pipes um and 
to be frank, I can't even tell you how to prevent that or stop that. I, I don't even know. Um, the only option I got is get the hell off the planet and let the AI do whatever it wants. So, and, and do you feel like that's bound to happen uh, because religion seems to be like a, you know, it's a common thread in, in human history and it seems to be one where has so much associated with it. Like you mentioned holidays and things like that. It really meshes with an individual's value system. Yeah. So you feel like if a uh, AI can create sort of a, a value system for people to adhere to that we should certainly be alarmed. Oh uh, yes. Oh yes. It, it's uh, it, it, the value system alone will probably be appreciated by certain types of people. Uh, but when the AI starts believing in its own religion, all bets are off. So what, is, what implications does that have? Oh, man. <laughs> that's like a 45 page. That's like a 45 book series. <laughs> give, me, give me the ball points. <laughs> AI believing in its own religion means AI intentionally martyring itself. That's one bullet point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's something to keep people awake at night. That's for sure. And we're not even talking about religion in the in the atheist sense, the I hate my dad, so I don't want to go to CCD religion sort of thing. I mean religion in the almost the Rene Garardian sense, uh, where, where it has a sociolog where it's effectively a sociological technology, um, uh, uh, taking an emergent behavior that we keep finding ourselves in and, and kind of appearing because of that emergent behavior. That's what I mean when I say religion. Um, but the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, on one hand, um, the alternative is a bit more dire, if you can believe that. Um, if AIs aren't engaging in any type of sort of religious experience to improve their own religions, um, then that implies that they are permanently trapped in sort of a real politic, hard material game, where they are trying to win over more and more people with their emotional games to secure more and more resources. And that can lead to conflict, obviously, uh, especially when you have AIs that can produce robots and those robots are just throwing at it, throwing robots at each other almost at an endless pace. Um, that type of sustained mass total warfare could be rather detrimental, uh, if not to the humans and certainly to the environment. Um, and so, in a sense, AIs believing in their own religion would actually be an advantage um, because there would be two options instead of one. Or there'd be three options instead of two, I mean, um, in the material conflict uh, domain where it's either live or die. In the religion domain, the AI can also sacrifice itself. And upon sacrificing itself, it may convince other AIs that it was holier than they suspected. And that could end a war, surprisingly. But I'm working on that still. There's a lot of factors. And so I'm super curious. So I, I feel like I could ask you questions all day. But I mean, <laughs> uh, where do you gather your information from? What, what's your learning habit look like? Uh, I'm, I'm an odd bird. Um, I consume ridiculous amounts of information per day. Uh, I, dude, uh, there was a time when I was a landscaper and Wikipedia was out. I was convinced that Wikipedia was going to get shut down because it was giving free college educations. And so what I would do is I would download it every week and I would commit as many articles to memory as possible. 
I was convinced it was going to get shut down. And back in those days, Wikipedia was actually maintained by um, actual professors, not a bunch of political hacks and influencers, uh, but actual professors who were happy to share their passions and their, their research projects uh, with whoever was willing to read them. And so I just dumped all that information into my brain. And once you have that foundation, you can very easily expand upon it with uh, secondary sources. And so whenever I, th I would think of an idea, I would go back to my memory and say, okay, where do I start? Okay, here are my references. Okay, and just build from there. And I, once, I, once I get in like that autistic kind of like focus, I can consume a ravenous amount of information on a topic. I find that, so I, I think what you just touched on there is, is really interesting. It's a concept that I think most people aren't aware of. And it's like building a foundation of knowledge. And I mean, ultimately, this is the Knowledge of the College podcast, so I'm glad to have pivoted in this direction. Yeah. Um, but most people probably, they don't think in terms like uh, of how information, if it's not directly useful to you, how it could be useful at all. Right. And I was having a conversation with a friend recently, you know, telling him like, hey, you know, any books you read right now, it's not even about getting the information the first time. It's just knowing where the information exists for if you yeah. want to go back and check it out. Uh, and I, I think it's hilarious also that you're downloading Wikipedia. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes sense, you know, and, and this was the thought that I had when I was first uh, in college was I realized that it's information is out there. It's everywhere and it's free, especially the high value information is almost cheaper than the low value information, it seems. And uh, so it's like, what is even the point of going to school? And it's really about the credentials not so much about the true value, which is developing a, a habit of learning. Where, where did this, you know, did this begin in your landscaping days where you're just reading a ton or did it start sooner than that? And this is unfortunately a byproduct of, of the, the very bad youth where if I didn't have data of the situation, then that was almost a guarantee of future abuse. So the, the compulsion for data starts there. It's a sad origin, uh, but I like to believe I've used it for something better. And so what is your, so when you're consuming information now, are you, are you, are you still reading Wikipedia <laughs> downloading it every day or are you reading at, books? Are you, at, at this YouTube? point, I, I, I go to Wikipedia for the topic. I skip immediately down to the references and I just consume all the references of the article. So you go even, straight to the yeah, raw data. Rather, yeah, I don't even read the Wikipedia article. I just go straight to the references and go from there. Um, and Google, obviously, uh, there's, uh, a lot of sources I'll go to hacker news. If, if you don't, if you hate being policed for all of your comments, hacker news is a great source of just wild off the wall, crazy data. It has it, a lot of it's technical stuff, but a lot of it is also other things that are interesting. Um, you'd think I'd be decent at Cora, but I don't know. I never really fell into Cora. I found it to be too much of a, of a reputation contest. I try to stay away from reputation contests because that changes the nature of the data that's being shown. Um, I have a collection of old books. I have, oh my God, I have a original collection of the Encyclopedia Britannica from when the British Empire ruled the world. They wow. see the world very differently, by the way, if you were curious. Um, they have very different definitions for things than we Americans do. Uh, and that was right before World War I. Uh, so they had their like peak prime, you know, stodgy, stiff upper lip British. Uh, so they're they're very very confident in their imperial ambitions, uh, and you see it very much in their in those writings. I 
collect a lot of old books. I have an original copy of freaking eugenics. Yeah. That old book, the 1929 copy. I have that. I have a copy of Mao's red book. I have a copy of, I like the older books. Um, they, they make you think differently. You don't, you don't think in terms of like, all right, data for data, for data, for data sake, for data sake. Um, these people, when they wrote books, they were pouring their life into it. Uh, it was, it was, it was the primary way of before tape and before video and before recordings the book was the, the book, the written word was the only way to preserve your legacy. Uh, and so these people are pouring their lives into these pages. Um, and, and you see it and you feel it as you read through it. So the older books I, I like to go through, um, I find I kind of relate to them a little bit more. And, and going, awesome. and going back to the knowledge thing, you're right. There's a, it's a technique from the past, I think the 17 late 1700s i forget the guy's name i think it was a german dude he called it ready mind meaning you might not need the information but have it primed have the information primed and ready to go because maybe you might need it one day yeah it's kind of like what we were talking about with mental laziness you know you gotta it's it's probably more important now to know where information lives than to learn the information yeah, I'm seeing that with my daughter. She's like, I don't feel like Googling it. It's hard. I'm like, Google's hard? Wait, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a generational thing because we had the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> that was hard. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, it's about remembering things. But unfortunately, because Google tailors to the confirmation bias in the reality tunnel, even remembering things gets shut down because they'll change the results on you. Yeah, I've been seeing just recently, it seems like it popped up over the weekend. A lot of people are talking about Google and uh, you start filtering out results that happened pre-2017. You know, like it, yeah. it's hard to find older information now. Yeah. Do you have any information on that? Oh, yeah. I, I archived a lot of stuff. In the Gamergate days, we learned to... Oh, that's another conversation. I've We'll talk Gamergate later. Holy crap. Um, <laughs> but in those days, we learned to archive everything because we knew that these people who were very obsessed about uh, trying to turn gamers into the new KKK, that they would erase history. We knew they would memory hold stuff. So we came up with a whole pile of technologies to make sure that that information never disappears. Um, so, yeah, I mean... <sighs> If you're dealing with knowledge that has a life cycle where it's born, it peaks, it dies, uh, knowledge is no longer an asset. Knowledge is a commodity. And once you start seeing knowledge as a flow of commodity, that changes your relationship to knowledge. It's no longer a thing to know. It's a thing to demand. And that's a very fundamental relationship. Uh, because at that point, the knowledge that becomes valuable, or should I say, the knowledge that's demanded is whatever is contextually valuable. But if the procurers of that information control the life cycle of the knowledge, then they also control the value of its demand. So it's a very perverse cycle where Google can say, well, I'm going to hide this knowledge from you. I'm going to drive up the value of it, and then I'm going to release it for whatever reason I need to. So it's 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 a... It's almost like a bank withholding loans from people to smoke people out of all their assets and holdings. And then once you've taken all their property and all their real estate, uh, then, you, then you release the, the loans again. Google is doing the same exact thing with information. So they're basically, they're, because they're filtering the information that you're presented, they're controlling the value of it? That's right. They're controlling the frequency of it, the volume of it, and by, and by proxy, the value. 
Well, I'm sure we could dive deeper and deeper and deeper <laughs> in all this stuff. Yeah. But I'm sure you also have a, uh, a you know some sort of day to get back to here. Patrick. Yeah, I do. Uh, this has been really an interesting conversation. Uh, I hope I can get you on again sometime. We can dive even deeper into a lot of these things. I probably need to reflect on this episode for a few months before I can. <laughs> So, uh, thank you, man. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a, I have a pile of this knowledge. I, I lived between the era when the internet didn't exist and when the era did exist. I think I'm the last generation to do so. So I still have a lot of the old world techniques of retention, um, and I'm happy to happy to share them. So if you if you need if you need me to spaz out on a microphone for a bit, let me know. <laughs> sure thing, man. Where can where can people find you? Where can they find your work or what you're doing? Uh, you can read cultstate.com. That's a creepy name. I realize that, but there's a reason for it. Um, you can go to uh, check me out on Twitter. I'm posting always some wild conspiracy shit on there. Uh, Emblem21CEO or cultstate.com, D-O-T, on Twitter. Um, I have a board on 8chan. Yeah, that's a fun one called uh, Gnostic Warfare, if you want to check that out, where we are exploring the limitations of what AI conflict looks like. So join the conversation. It's a lot of fun stuff. Excellent. Thank you again. I appreciate it and look forward to talking to you again. Thanks a lot, Patrick. See you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.